will the ash cloud go when the volcano blows? That's the big question in Alaska these days as the restless readout volcano shows signs of an eruption. We ask a volcanologist why volcanoes can be the wild card in weather and climate. And robins in February? Jetstreaming listeners are reporting red-breasted flocks in the backyard. Why are they here? And how do other animals react to changes in weather and climate? Canada's premier climatologist weighs in with some answers. Where will you go when the volcano blows? Robins and parrot heads unite on jet streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Now my girl quickly said to me, Mind you watch your feet. Greetings once again, everybody. I'm Paul Hutner from Minnesota Public Radio. My partner in weather crime today is fellow Minnesota Public Radio and longtime National Weather Service meteorologist Craig Edwards. Hi, Craig. Hi, Paul. Good to be back with you again. Good to be with you. And we've got a lot of headlines to cover this week in the weather world. And, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Punxsutawney Phil on this Groundhog Week. He saw his shadow Monday, and his forecast is for six more weeks of winter. And that may be good news, since his forecast accuracy running only about 39% since 1867. Now, closer to our neck of the woods, Jimmy the Groundhog in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, uh, claims about 80% accuracy. Staten Island Chuck, 85% accuracy. And one bitten mayor to boot, Craig. Happy Groundhog Week. Well, happy Groundhog Week to you. And i got to remind our listeners that uh, I learned in Indianapolis many years ago that actually February 5th was called Weatherman's Day in honor of some somebody who was uh, around, and they just said, let's call February 5th Weatherman's Day. So <laughs> I'll ask our listeners to go Google that, so see if I'm correct about February 5th being, I guess it is Weather People Day now. Well, and we have our own holiday. I'm happy about that. <laughs> the biggest snowstorm in 18 years this week hit London, a well-predicted, I might add, four inches of snow, and that shut the city down. The city that beat the Blitz could not handle four inches of snow Craig, kind of uh, makes you appreciate our Minnesota Department of Transportation in winter, doesn't it? Sure, and I experienced that a little bit in our own continent here with going out to uh, Seattle for Christmas and, and experiencing 10 to 12 inches of snow. And I think they figure out there that when the rains return and the milder temperatures come in, the snow will go away anyway. So actually the snow is all melted out in Seattle now. So I think they handle snow the same way in London. Just let it run down the gutters in the streets. Now, a more serious storm to our south the Kentucky governor calling it the worst natural disaster in Kentucky history. And they are still recovering from last week's devastating ice storm. There are 24 people have died in Kentucky, 54 total from this intense ice storm. And many of those dead from hypothermia and carbon monoxide poisoning. Craig, ice storms, maybe some of the most underrated storms in nature? Yeah, we experienced that a lot where I was at in central Indiana and Indianapolis, and uh, not uncommon for see that down in Kentucky. And I think, Paul, what happens is this type of event is very uh, much localized for the intensity part of it, but this particular case, there was widespread uh, power outages, and they're still suffering from that yet today. And I think that uh, it sort of loses, we lose track of that, because once the visuals go away, it's sort of like restoring one house at a time with power. So it's not a grand uh, project that gets done all at once. It's sort of like one house at a time when you have power down throughout a large area. Well, and speaking of Indiana on the northern side of this storm, they got mostly snow with this system, and, and now they're talking about flooding. 
with the warm-up. What's happening in your old stomping grounds there? Yeah, what's going on down there, Paul, is uh, when they had the ice storm down in Kentucky, they ended up getting over 12 inches of snow with this storm in Indianapolis. And they're talking about one to three-inch water content in that snow with uh, still a snow depth of anywhere between six to eight inches. And they're thinking that this warm-up, this mild air that's going to come in, is going to melt most of that snow rather quickly in the next four or five days. So they're concerned about some lowland flooding. I think uh, we'll have to watch and see if there's some heavy rainfall on top of that. But Indiana may be a place to watch for some flood potential as we go into next week. And it's not all about winter weather across the planet these days. Parts of Australia have endured the hottest temperatures ever recorded there. Three days in a row of 110-plus scorched Melbourne. Adelaide's 114-degree high, the hottest day there in 70 years. And their low that night, 93. That was the low overnight. That's the hottest night ever recorded there. As many as 37 people have died in the heat wave. What a planet, Craig. Ice and heat waves and now apparently floods all in one week down there. Isn't this all something? Then we got to talk about maybe a little bit about earthquakes and volcanoes. How about throwing in uh, the whole gamut of Mother Nature? Well, we might as well. And if you think today's show sounds like a 70s disaster movie, you're right. And it gets more apocalyptic from here. In the past week, two volcanoes made news. Cue Tommy Lee Jones and the nice B-movie here. It's Japan's Mount Asama. That one erupted early Monday morning, spewing ash some 6,000 feet into the air and hurling rocks up to one kilometer away. The eruption so far considered minor. Mount Asama last erupted in 1994. And in Alaska, all eyes are on the Mount Redoubt volcano, about 100 miles southwest of Anchorage. Seismic activity increased dramatically there on Friday, and by Saturday, steaming fumaroles could be seen as scientists from the USGS Alaska Volcano Observatory flew by the crater. Mount Redoubt last erupted in 1989 and 1990. Now, volcanic eruptions, they make great pictures and can have devastating effects on nearby areas, but if eruptions are big enough, they can affect weather and climate over the entire planet for years. Rick Wonderman is a volcanologist with the Mineral Sciences staff at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, and he joins us today from Washington, D.C. Rick, welcome to Jet Streaming. Thank you very much for having me. Let's talk about our current volcanic activity a little bit in Japan and Alaska. What are you seeing there, and what's the latest? Well, if, to, to start with Japan, uh, it's sort of uh, fine ash uh, sifted over a reasonably large area, over 100 kilometers away. Uh, ash fell, covered road signs with a thin dust. I don't think there was very much disruption from it, but uh, people are always concerned because this is one of the closer volcanoes to uh, a, a, a capital of a country. It's about 140 kilometers, about 100 miles uh, to, to, from Tokyo. So, you know, that's uh, worrisome, but it's been... Uh, it's done this so many times, this kind of puffing kind of a thing. And then in the case of Readout, uh, we're sort of sitting on pins and needles. When that went off, as you said, in 1989-90, there was huge economic impact to all kinds of things. Uh, people don't realize, but that's a hub area for airlines that make the transit uh, to, the, to Asia, uh, carrying cargoes and all kinds of economic activity, pivotal uh, oil, you know, shipping and things. So it's uh, uh, worrisome. Uh, but uh, so far it hasn't erupted, and uh, we're, but we're seeing great signs that the kind of uh, precursory signs, we call them. But uh, sometimes we get all these precursory signs and then 
nothing happens. So it's not uh, by any means a certainty. It's kind of like forecasting the weather. You guys have a lot of advantages forecasting the weather because it repeats over <laughs> and over really often. Volcanoes, we don't get as much practice. Yeah, this is Craig Edwards, and I want to ask you if this, you know, you, you've led up to that very nicely, and I was wondering if this is just a burp going on and a settling of the, you know, the the the, the, the uh, atmosphere, not the atmosphere, but the ground out there. Is this something that uh, is not a sure thing? It just We're going to watch it for a while, and it could sort of just settle down and uh, become a non-news event? Exactly. It's anything is possible. One likes to think that we have lots of instruments, and they give us great insight into into the world and they and they help they're very helpful things like seismometers that look at earthquakes and shaking and you can look down in space and see where these are are and if they are getting increasingly shallow you know coming up from a great depth 20 kilometers 10 kilometers 5 kilometers and then you know bingo they something is going to come out and there's signs that there's molten fluids probably moving around at depth in the volcano now there's there's a thing called tremors kind of like a heartbeat and uh you know it's sort of saying that the patient is alive and uh, you know uh, something could happen but it's not really uh so easy sometimes Sometimes things sort of freeze up and never get to a certain past a certain stage. It's very very stressful actually for everybody involved. <laughs> Rick, you talked a little about forecasting as something, of course, that we do every day. And you're right with weather. We probably have a lot more data, even though uh, sometimes our data is pretty limited. How what is the state of the science right now in volcanic forecasting? And have there been some successes in the past? Yes, and this would if this goes on to erupt, of course, it would be a great success because it's instrumented and it's, um, you know, what's the right word? It's given precursory signs that follow all sorts of classical things like you might expect. Uh, but uh, there are many kinds of instruments now, and unfortunately... In uh, in most of the world, I'm kind of interested in the global scale of, of volcanoes. In most of the world, there's there's almost no instrument on a typical volcano. This this one, because it's in Alaska and it's uh, threatening the Cook Inlet, leads to anchorage. Uh, it, it's you know, uh, and it's known in the past to have been a sort of a bad actor in producing really destructive, economically you know, uh, menacing eruptions. Mm-hmm. The uh, the thing has been instrumented and is and it's giving clear signs but but and I will say that that a, a, a volcano like Kilauea in Hawaii has you know tens of seismometers and really sophisticated systems of interacting and studying it and, and many examples because it's been erupting for 25 years, but uh, many of the rest don't have such a, such a long track record, don't have so many instruments always there, and it's a workout for uh, people. They generally have to bring instruments and put them in a temporary spot and. They they have to keep nursing them along and keeping them running, and and uh, you know, I, I'll, the long and the short of it is, it's just a hit and miss uh, thing. Um, contrast that to to um, meteorology, where you can, with satellites, see through the atmosphere a lot better. You know, a lot more right. tools, I would say. And frankly, there's been more money spent because weather every day affects just about everybody. But when they blow, Rick, what kind of short-term weather effects can occur with these eruptions? I mean. We would think of loss of sunlight. I've heard instances of lightning and thunder, yeah. uh, short-term cooling, vivid sunsets, that kind of thing. What what happens locally and in the shorter term with these eruptions when it comes to affecting weather? One of the great 
realizations is this in an eruption, in a big eruption locally, there's a huge amount of water output. It's sort of like getting a thunderstorm there, Johnny on the spot, within mm-hmm. maybe an hour or two. So you have, uh, depending on the, the temperature, you have a thundercloud that, that just grew and maybe even multiple times bigger than a typical thunderstorm because volcanic clouds can actually penetrate into the stratosphere and carry up material. But anyway, there's local effects that include hail and lightning, like you said, and huge amounts of rain can fall. And, of course, ash can actually uh, blacken the sky. You know, many uh, volcanoes have erupted where people have had hours, days, maybe even as long as a week, um, more or less, of darkness where, you know, streetlights will come on and uh, then, uh, you know, it's for all intents and purposes dark. And, uh, you know, it's, and it's just like snow, but it doesn't melt. So think of that problem. It's And it doesn't wash away. In fact, often if rain falls on it, you can get these hardening kind of crusts. And it's, it's fantastically expensive, for example, to remove from an airport. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars just to remove from an airport. Craig Edwards and I often talk about the climatic effects of potential big eruptions. Uh, first of all, and we only have a, a less than a minute, are, what are the, these two volcanoes capable of? And, uh, you know, what kind of aerosols get up there and how effective are they at reflecting sunlight? Great question. Uh, well, we usually think of these are both what we call stratovolcanoes. They're your nice, typical garden variety cone like Mount St. Helens. M- most of the time, these do not uh, produce gigantic, you know, super volcano size, many, many cubic kilometers of stuff into the atmosphere. But that's a generalization. But you know, and so you know, if a typical one erupts, it it might last eight hours in a bigger eruption, and it might you know, uh, put a cloud out that covers, let's say, uh, 10% of a continent mm-hmm. uh, with some kind of fallout. What about what about the big ones? Yeah, well, I mean, and, and that that's right. When the big ones, <laughs> all bets are off. I mean, there's many, many times, maybe a thousand times that. So it does cover, in, in the case of really big eruptions, which are only once maybe every 40 or 100,000 years kind of numbers. They're not very common. But when when a big one goes, that covers a continent with measurable ash over the whole thing in general and, you know, just devastating effects uh, portrayed in that movie Super Volcano, if you saw it, which was a dramatization. Didn't catch that one. But we know historically Mount Tambora, some of the big ones have had uh, global effects uh, for even... (laughs) You know, seasons or years to come, Pinatubo as well. Rick, we're running out of time here. I'm up against the clock, but uh, we really appreciate you talking with us today. Thanks for drifting into jet streaming and sharing your insight today. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I'm all right. but about me. Why you got to give me a fight? Can't you just let it be? Remember that little gopher from Caddyshack? Well, it turns out he has lots of company when it comes to how critters of all shapes and sizes respond to climate changes or changes in weather, for that matter. Now, they may not have Bill Murray and assistant groundskeeper Carl Spackler chasing them around with plastic explosives or anything, but they do have to run from bad weather. And one person who keeps an eye on how plants and animals react to weather and climate is Dr. David Phillips with Environment Canada. 
and he joins us today from Ottawa. David, welcome to Jetstreaming. Thank you, Paul. Nice to be with you. Now, we talked a a bit about this last week on Jetstreaming. In this part of the world, it seems more than the usual number of flocks of robins have been sighted in the area this winter. We know that some robins winter over here, but would there be any reason for what seems to be maybe an increased number this year? Well, you know, my, uh, my, uh, myself, I have not really seen uh, any increased sightings or rescues or excessive mortalities of, uh, of animals. Uh, it could be that these creatures did have a heads up about the kind of winter we've got, and they, they decided to go south. But uh, uh, certainly, I think we've been benefited by the fact that uh, in most parts of the northern part of the United States and in Canada, we had a good snow cover before the, uh, the cold really arrived, which, uh, so the Creatures below that snow cover certainly have been uh, somewhat insulated. Snow is a great insulator, and so there has been some uh, uh, some protection there. But but certainly there, there's all kinds of indications, or that uh, animals seem to be uh, uh, confused about what's going on. Maybe maybe rapid uh, runaway kind of climate change, and we've seen uh, uh, different behavioral changes in terms of their migration and hibernation and uh, and and breeding practices and behavior. And uh, a lot of people have linked that, in fact, to, uh, uh, to the fact that the world is warming up, that we're seeing these uh, uh, dramatic changes. And, and believe it or not, animals respond quite, uh, quite quickly to these uh, things. I often uh, think the animals are already adapting to change in climate. It, human beings are still trying to figure it out. Now, this is Craig Edwards. I remember first starting out in Milwaukee, and uh, they had the folklore going back in the 70s, and they say, well, the squirrels are gathering a lot of nuts. It's going to be a cold winter. And then one guy said that, no, they remember last winter was cold, so they're just basing it on what they remember last year. So can can animals have that much of a sense and that much of a predictor of weather, even in the short term? Well, Craig, you know, it's a good question. And, you know, our ancestors believed passionately that animals, that lower life forms, had a, had a very uh, a, a sort of a heads up as to what was going to happen. It was almost as if nature was assumed to be fair and, uh, and looked after these uh, lower creatures. Uh, and uh, it, we people felt that, oh, my gosh, there were certain rhythms in, in nature, like uh, rise and, and, and setting of the sun and the uh, seasonal changes and hibernation. So if you could sort of watch the behavior of animals, you could figure out what what nature was going to give you in, in a way of, uh, of weather. I, I really think that, um, and some people passionately still uh, still believe that. I think what we have to understand is that these animals, in terms of telling us what whether the season ahead or, or just what's around the corner in the next uh, uh, hour or two, they're responding to to current changes and past changes. They're not really forecasting the weather. Um, they are maybe keener than ours. They've got greater instincts to us. I mean, we wait for that big black cloud to hang over us before we say, hey, it looks like rain. And, <laughs> and they have probably have sensed the humidity change, a pressure change, a temperature change, a electrification change. And so they're probably responding to that in advance of what we think, uh, uh, what we see ourselves. And, uh, and so that's why this, this entire folklore has developed uh, uh, with regards to uh, animals trying to, uh, to forecast the weather, from Puxtawani Phil to, uh, my gosh, people thinking that they're particularly Killer cat uh, uh, is a is a great uh, is a great forecaster. So there's this this folklore has developed over the years, and uh, and uh, people believe it passionately, I guess, to some extent. Now, in recent years, and I'm curious about the science of this. We've observed what seem to be changing migration patterns with some birds, some animals. I know we've seen some bird species farther north into Minnesota 
that we haven't seen uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Are there actually documentable shifts in migration patterns over the last decade or so? Well, there are. I mean, certainly if you look at the scientific literature, and I'm not a, a biologist, I don't follow that literature keenly, but I look at the climate change literature, and I look at uh, scientists reporting in, in various fields, including the, uh, um, the, the bio, biological world, that things are happening and in, 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 in very quickly. And particularly, a lot of the emphasis and documentation has been on biological changes. You know, the cherries blossoming in Washington a little earlier than right. they, uh, they used to. But there are examples... Uh, uh, in, in terms of um, uh, one report I recently saw about Central California, about butterflies showing up about almost uh, a month to, to six weeks earlier than they did, say, 25 years ago. And clearly we've also seen in the, in the Arctic, particularly, uh, salmon being found now in Arctic waters or uh, 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 various uh, uh, animals uh, migrating earlier. And, of course, it's not just scientific evidence. You talk to people who are great outdoors people, uh, uh, hunters and fishers and trappers and, and people who are very keen observers and they'll mm-hmm. tell you that you know birds arriving earlier for example or staying around longer and and clearly the arctic uh, the inuit people whose lives and livelihood depend upon uh, uh hunting and fishing uh it's like uh, elders are find their wisdom is just out the window i mean things are happening so dramatically uh that um uh, they're having to to uh find hunting grounds in in quite different areas and at different timings uh and uh, and even the biological world is confused. I remember seeing recently a report of of these Arctic terns that migrate that winter in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, but then uh, travel up to the Arctic shores. And what they're doing is they're arriving there in the Arctic shore, and they're they're uh, they're um, laying eggs. When the the young hatch, the insects which they feed on have been there already two weeks or three weeks earlier, and so there's no food for them to to feed on. So it's a very confusing and upsetting kind of situation. And uh, and there's a lot of uh, angst about that. Yeah, this is Craig Edwards. I, I love listening to your wisdom on this story and how the cascading effect of the climate in general and the climate change evolves into how nature reacts to that. And uh, it's hard to get a full grasp of that unless you are an outdoors person. So I, I think we've got to go to the people that are really experiencing this up close and firsthand and watch and listen to the stories they are telling about what they're noticing with oh, birds and, and animal I migration. Think that- you know, scientists are paid to look after this. It's people who uh, who go out and enjoy it as a hobby or just a, a lifestyle that are, are keen observers, like our ancestors. I think the one thing that uh, they were, first and foremost, were keen observers of the sky and their surroundings and their environment. I sometimes think we spoon-feed people the, the weather nowadays, that people don't look to the sky, they don't appreciate it and see the awesome power and, and the changes and the beauty of the, uh, of the atmosphere. I mean, it's almost like visual music, you know. No, it's uh, mm-hmm. it, it just unless there's a, a double rainbow or a lightning strike, they're they're almost oblivious to something they they breathe 16 times a minute. And uh, but I think people who go out there and appreciate the outdoors and for for love of, of sport or just to to walk uh, um, are uh, are often have some observations which are are right on and uh, maybe not scientifically uh, uh, founded, but uh, clearly a good a good source of, of information for people to, to acknowledge. Observation, of course, is a, is a key part of science. It's something uh, we certainly try to encourage people to do here. David, David Phillips from Environment Canada, thanks so much for migrating south of the border and <laughs> sharing your perspective with us today. Thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. 
Thunder in winter, not a common sound in Minnesota, but it is here on Jetstreaming every week, and uh, this is where we highlight our website of the week. Craig Edwards, you've got one for us today that you've been surfing on. Tell us what it is. Paul, this is a great site. I tell you, it's a one-stop shopping for everything we talk about here at Jetstreaming. It's called usgs.gov. That's the uh, U.S. Geological Survey, and they've got everything on there from earthquakes and droughts and uh, and all sorts of uh, flood information. So everything you need to know pretty much about the environment, they're monitoring it through the U.S. Geological Survey. And they've got a thing on there, Paul, that says the eruption of redoubt is likely. So we'll have mm. to see how that plays out in another week or two. Yeah, and I found this very interesting to watch because uh, they don't know. The state of forecasting volcanoes clearly not as good as the state of weather forecasting, even though some people would argue with the state of that these days. So good good stuff, good site. We'll check it out for you. And a great show today. Nice discussion, Craig. Good to chat with you. Nice to talk with you, Paul. That's a wrap on this Groundhog Week edition of Jet Streaming. Thanks for listening, and please tell two more weather geeks about the show, will you? For producers P. Ray Rudolph and Jim, the day the music died, Bickle, and sound ace Randy Johnson, I'm Paul Hutner. Keep your ear here to jet streaming and keep your weather eyes on the sky.